Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 24. I'm your host, Eric Swain, and with me this time is known game designer, author, and zinester, Anna Anthropy. Hi. Thank you very much for coming on to the show with me. Yeah, uh, no we've been We've been sort of on a publication kick as of recently, hitting all the greatest hits, and of course, next in line is your original book, Rise of the Zinesters, How Freaks, Normals, Amateurs, Artists, Dreamers, Dropouts, Queers, Housewives, and People Like You Are Taking Back an Art Form. Wow, you got why the such, title. Why such a long title? Um, well, I mean, so the idea was that, I mean, we wanted to be as inclusive as possible, and part of how we wanted to do that was to present a lot of cases that contradicted each other, and so, hence the really, really long title. But I just like long titles in general. It means your work will never be misremembered or mis or like misattributed. Only mispronounced, yes. <laughs> but where did the idea of the book come from? You Throughout all your work, you've shown the same tendency that the book expresses, the idea of people getting out their creative spirit into this new medium thanks to new tools and new opportunities that have been arisen through the Internet. But why a book? What caused you to actually go that extra step to write the full thing? Well, like, the book wasn't actually my idea. So I had written for some website I don't really care for anymore, an article called Rise of the Video Game Zinesters, uh, like maybe a year before I started writing the book, that was about a lot of the same ideas that went into the book. The idea that new tools are democratizing digital game design in a way that's like not dissimilar to how the printing press in some ways changed who had access to the means to publish. And someone who worked in the publishing industry, who is now a good friend of mine, approached me and was like, how would you feel about writing a full-length book on this subject? She was like, you know, I feel like the time is right for this book, and my publisher will publish it. I mean, they didn't end up, like, being super reliable in, in other aspects of publishing, like, paying me and stuff, but they definitely published it. And you have quite a lot of interesting ideas sprinkled throughout the book. If if we could like just like go through a number of them. I, sure. like, in the book, you give a definition, and it, whenever you give it to nebulous concepts that don't like have a physical object, you always end up bringing up new questions. Like Your definition of game is experience defined by rules. What do you mean by experience? What qualifies in this case, in this definition, and what doesn't? Well, I should say that the goal of my definition was not to create a criteria for, like, to exclude some things and include others. That was, like, my, my definition was kind of written with the opposite in mind, because I feel like this conversation comes up a lot among academic dudes who get paid to write blog posts about this subject and nothing else about like you know what exactly is a game and how can we distinguish games from these other things that aren't and like i'm really not interested in telling anyone that a thing that they're they've created that they're calling a game isn't a game not that being a game is like some great achievement in and of itself but like i wasn't really ever interested in having a definition that would 
exclude things or being be exclusionary in any way. And so that's sort of what I'm trying to do with my definition in, in Zinesters and the giant disclaimer around it. Yes, it is very broad. But And then you also give, like, this is not an... Ex- like, doing your taxes isn't an experience that would really qualify in this case. Because you're... You're looking for more of it like an artistic resolve rather than, uh, I guess, like a, fe- a phenomenological one. I mean, I think it's more interesting to like, I think it's less interesting to call doing your taxes a game. But I mean, if there's, I could make, someone can make an argument that there's an interesting way to understand taxes. But then you get into like game theory stuff and like, eh. <laughs> Then you go on t- into like how you first started, and you start and you compare it to remix culture, mm-hmm. and then and sort of the idea of mods as a like a comparable to like remixing music to create new music, mm-hmm. and that this is an idea of smaller game communities, and then framed it as a provocateur towards creativity. Oh, wow, I haven't read that book in a while. Uh, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, yeah, I I mean, I don't consider myself an expert on, on music or, or remix culture in general, but I think there's this idea, this learned idea about games that they're really not mutable or that, you know, that they're produced in some, like, esoteric or mystical way that is completely inaccessible to the average person or to people who only think of themselves in relation to games as being consumers. And so in talking about you know, mods and about remix culture, I wanted to sort of put forth the idea that games are actually, even like even di- digital games, video games, are intrinsically mutable and changeable. And that this is like, that modding is sort of an avenue to to game design and to game creation that, you know, games are open to tinkering or I guess what, you know, people would call hacking as much as any other form is. But it's the basis of later ideas where you take something that is familiar, but then when you try to recreate it, it twists to your own personality Mm -hmm. in these in these lovely fuzzy ways. Yeah, there's also, I mean, there's this piece also where, like, sort of imperfections or sloppiness are, like, a sign of the creator's personality, where they're, like, sort of room for personal expression to exist. That everything that you make is different or is even broken in some way, then at least it's different or broken in a way that marks it as, as yours. And this is an idea that I think has people have been really applying lately in terms of glitch art and failure in games is the idea that, you know, things can break in ways that make them more beautiful or that make them more interesting or more unique or more possessive personality. Um, and so that's a, you know, a lot of people's first, game creation experiences are really derivative and they're like, you know, I'm trying to remake Mega Man, I'm trying to remake 
I, you know, someone, while I was working on ZZT, someone told me about, like, writing their first game about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in ZZT. And, like, these are really derivative, like, attempts to recreate a thing, but the ways in which they fail to recreate the thing, the ways in which they end up much different from that thing are what make the things way more interesting than if they were copies of the thing. What about, like, the concept of building off of those, like, alterations or quote-unquote mistakes in, like, a process of editing to create something even more or, like, build off of that idea to create something, like, even more themselves or off... You get what I'm... You're trying to understand what I'm saying? I, I think so. I mean, I feel like... I mean, definitely within any community of game makers, there's, like, people feeding off of each other's ideas and things that are introduced as sort of by accident or as, like, quick and messy patches end up becoming the thing that, you know, the thing that is itself copied, the thing that future things are derivative of. And so, like, those things end up becoming entire paths of design, I guess. I'm not really sure what you're... Are you sure if I'm if I'm answering the question? Well, you know, it's still interesting. What I'm saying is, like, in the book, you spend a lot of time of like trying to get people to break out of that shell mm-hmm. of like the idea that they just can't do it, and just it's the same idea of NaNoWriMo. The quickest way to write a book is to pick up a pen and just put it to paper, regardless of what comes out. Mm-hmm. There's this idea of like polish in games that I think holds a lot of people back from making stuff and specifically from making interesting stuff. I mean, at the time that I was working on Rise of the Game Zinesters, I was very active in a community called Glorious Trainwrecks. And what Glorious Trainwrecks would do is once a month, I think on the third Saturday of every month, they would have a two-hour game jam. Like, you had to produce something in two hours that was, like, finished. And, like, that, I think, isn't, like, I I recommended that to, like, I used to recommend that to, like, new creators all the time. And, in fact, I talk about it a few times in Rise of the Video Game Zinesters because I feel like that there's, like, this idea of what a finished game should look like that prevents a lot of people from finishing games or from, like, thinking that their games are, are worthy of being... Put you know put out into the world, and like I think there needs to be. I feel like people probably like in many cases need to be made to realize that there's like that value is kind of superficial, and that I you know given an incentive to just allow themselves to be creative and not worry about what the you know the perception of the thing will be i feel like a lot of creators who are just starting out get hung up on that for a really long time and never end up producing anything i guess my like earlier question was the idea is that after they've broken out of that shell and they've started to create this idea and i guess gotten around that hang up what about like improving a work actually adding in like polish or rather editing it to become something more stable or even deeper and better. Oh, I guess you could do that if you like. I mean, <laughs> I don't. I often don't spend a lot of time on that. 
Like, in general, and partly this is a consequence of my economic situation, I'm basically, like, living, basically living on the edge of losing my home. So I don't have a lot of time to sort of do the deep and wide or whatever, like the sort of deep development that, like, I feel like a lot of indie dudes are really into, like, taking, like, an entire year and refining this one match three physics game until it's just unquestionably perfect. Like, I don't, I can't afford to take an entire year and work on a thing. And so my process has become very much about, you know, having an idea, making an implementation of it, moving on to the next thing. And not spending a lot of time... I mean, in some cases, I've come back to projects if I had new ideas for them. But generally, I don't really... I can't really afford to, like, ruminate on a single thing for too long. Even if you could, would you? do you think that this form of creation is, suits more your style and personality? I feel like I'm bored of things if I spend too long on them. I mean... So I guess... The longest thing I, I think I've ever worked on, like, spent developing, was Lesbian Spider Queens of Mars, which I recently was able to release on Itch.io, which is exciting. Hard as hell. Yeah, it's a pretty hard game. Um, definitely the kind of game I don't really make anymore. But I was able to, you know, because of the, the generosity of Adult Swim, I was able to work on that game for a really long time. And, like do a lot of very minute tweaking of a lot of really tiny details. And that was, like, an interesting way to work on a game. But also also a kind of obsessive way to work on a game. And, you know, I was working recently on a project that was similar but much shorter. Um, my game Frog Assassin which I think I spent, like, about a week on, ultimately. And at the end, I felt like I had to, like, call it done and tear myself away from it because there's this really obsessive, like, obsessed with minutiae and this tweaking tiny things and, and trying them and tweaking them again and trying them that just becomes such a trap that I think you end up, like, sort of paralyzed and unable to, like, make any sort of real progress in that kind of project because you're you're so you're so trapped in the details you're so obsessed with this kind of very insignificant mechanical adjustments and like that kind of game design does not feel good to me at all i mean there are there are games that have come out out of that process that are really interesting and are really sort of beautiful because of having, you know, gone through that kind of refinement. But, you know, for me, that tends to make me feel really obsessive and uncomfortable. And I feel like I'd rather be doing more stuff than doing the same thing over and over and over and over and releasing a game a year later. When you create work, both your books and your games, you seem to have a very definitive image of the audience this is for in mind. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I feel like the, the audience for a lot of my work is 
kind of just me at this point. I feel like I make a lot of things that it feels like only I will be interested in, and then if other people are interested in, it's kind of an exciting surprise. Like, recently I made a game called The Mystery of the Missing Mythics, which is a twine choose-your-own-adventure where you use image, like, it's sort of like Mad Libs, you use image search to perform a bunch of searches the game tells you, to, and you choose images, which later show up in the story. And I don't think anyone cared, like, I was really excited about this game and spent, like, a long time, like, working on it and was, like, really thrilled with how well it came out. And I don't think anyone cared about it but me. But, like, I, I feel like that's more the trend with my projects these days is that I'm generally just designing things that I'm excited about and not really stopping to consider if anyone else will care about them. That's, I guess, another perk of the having to do lots of, produce lots of content really quickly without lingering too much. The first game in the Rise of the Zinsters book that you talk about that you created was Calamity Annie. Uh-huh. I hadn't heard it before, so of course I went out and tried it. And it's a really neat piece of design. Oh, thank you. But it, all, it also reminded me of in some ways, it queers in love at the end of the world because of the way you, you work a, a countdown clock. Like, you have to do everything really quickly. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is that, like, time and interest to you? It's not that I think I'm particularly interested in time as a concept, but that I feel like time is just so intrinsic to games and to play that, like, really, you can't help but make games that... It, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, I lost it. I'm sorry. Uh, that's fine. It's kind of. It was kind of off the top of my head question. It was question. a good question, though. It feels like it's something that should be explored. Actually, the end of the book, it's you have, like, the, the last two chapters are, like, speculation towards the future and all this hopeful rising... And then a few years later, we're living in a time where that scaffolding that you predicted is being erected around us. Mm -hmm. We have, like, uh, other... I believe your quote was, fuck Steam and the Apple Store. Uh -huh. And now we have, like, the Humble Store that's open to anyone who wishes to put their game. We have Itch.io, mm -hmm. which is for smaller and free yeah, being distributors. Yeah, the, the real, I think. The real. Yeah. I have... I want to say game changer, but I'm but that's terrible. But like, yeah, like I mean, it was interesting because like, because like the book came out, and I think I talk about Twine for like one page towards the back, and then I guess like within a year of the book coming out, Twine was everywhere, and which was you know the most gratifying thing like to see. Like I cried seeing how Twine proliferated among exactly the sort of people that I wanted to be more involved in game making. And then, you know, it, Itch.io, I guess I'll just call it Itch, and Itch came, like, sort of, like, not much longer. And it's pretty incredible to see, you know, a lot of the things that I wanted blossoming. But at the same time, there you know, there was also a feeling that those sorts of things are inevitable because that's 
where that's where we're going. That's where the, you know the future is not in like more like blockbuster games about space marines trying to talk aliens and sleeping them and like sleeping with them. Like the the future is in more people making more dinky little games and you know distributing them on whatever infrastructures exist to do that. And so it was only a matter of time until something like itch like was founded, um, which is not to downplay the, you know, amazing work that leaf does in, in running the site. But yeah, like that was a tool that everyone needed and here it is. And the, you know, the same thing with twine in a lot of ways. And so it's really satisfying to see that to see that coming about, but at the same time, it really was going to happen, you know, regardless of anything. Did you think it would happen so quickly, or were you like looking a little too distant? Oh no, I I guess I was I was sort of hoping that this vision would come true someday, and it was really surprising and exciting that it that twine took off so soon after the book came out. You think the book like helped uh, pro- propagate it in any way? I don't know because I don't talk about twine itself that much in the book, but definitely, I mean, definitely I talk about a lot of, I you know a lot of stuff that people would end up doing with it. I definitely, the publication of the book definitely gave me more of a platform to, tour and to talk about you know people becoming involved in game creation to talk about DIY game creation and how accessible it's becoming and to do workshops where I talk taught people twine I mean I'm not I'm not the fucking Johnny Appleseed of twine but like I definitely the book helped me get into a position where I could I think expose more people to twine and to the idea that like it's not corporations only that make video games mm-hmm. and also we have the beginnings of like other support structures like the we have a uh, patreon and curatorial sites like the forest ambassador mm-hmm. to help spread the word of creations <laughs> spread the word of creation oh creations mm-hmm. sorry I eat my words sometimes. Yeah, no, for for sure. Like, there's... And, like, Patreon is not really a long-term solution in a lot of ways, but definitely there is a lot of democratizing technology available for people who, a few years ago, would not have had access to anything like... Mm-hmm. You know, in a way, it's just, like, an easier use of the tip jar that... You'd have to like install and program yourself. So yeah, Patreon, I think, in a, in a lot of ways, is not really a long-term solution, but it's definitely getting money to people who might not otherwise have access to it. And you know, a large portion of my regular income, in fact, the most regular part of my income, comes from Patreon and from my patrons, and so. You know, it's not a long-term solution, but right now it's a very necessary part of how I make my living. And so that sort of 
tool wasn't really around for people to use like very long ago. And anyhow, I think definitely there are a lot of democratizing tools that have come out really, really recently that have made it possible or at least easier for a lot of people who might not otherwise have been able to, you know, to make this their thing, to make game design something realistic and livable. Um, and it's, they're definitely making it easier to do that. I know plenty of non-games people who are using, who are using itch also, in fact, which is really interesting to me. Do you think that not only in democratizing the tools to get more creators making games, but do you think in a way that these structures, like sites like Itch.io and Forest Ambassadors to help point th- people towards interesting things, has increased the audience oh, for this sort for, of games? For sure. I mean, there has never, you know, for a long time, games that were, you know, games that were outsider games existed, games that were being produced outside of the industry but it was hard to find them if you weren't already involved in those communities. And, you know, I, people have expressed to me repeatedly feelings that it's mostly still only only game developers who are sort of the audience for Itch.io, or who at least are the people who are mostly using them to find and play games. But I think... Itch.io is the start of this kind of of this filter for for games that I think is really important. That is actually, you know, connecting people who are not interested in m- many of the you know the more the more um, publicized games that exist, but who would be interested in a lot of stuff that's like uh, you know on Itch.io if they were able to find it, and I think Ichio is you know, the start of actually giving those people a way to find stuff that they would be interested in. So, you not only wrote Zinesters, but uh, with Boss Fight Books, you wrote a game you talk about a lot in Zinesters, Zit. Mm-hmm. I believe that's the correct pronunciation. I mean, supposedly. Um, so, like... So I in there was an interview a couple years ago where Tim Sweeney, the creator of ZZT, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call it ZZT because that mm-hmm. sounds right to me. He said that like it's supposed to be pronounced like the sound effect, you know, the sound effects that you hear all the time. Uh, but like the truth is that the you know the reason he chose a, a name for his game that has a double Z is like. So it would always be the last thing on like any alphabetical list of games, like specifically the shareware discs and CDs that the game would have been distributed on at the time. There's a place in Oakland called Aardvark Laser Engraving that I pass by like pretty regularly, and they don't got any Aardvarks inside. They're not staffed by Aardvarks. Like it's pretty like they definitely chose the name because double A puts them, you know, at the beginning of the phone book. And it's the same case with ZZT. So I am comfortable just calling it ZZT. But you can you can keep calling it if you want, and I will I will honor and respect that. 
I, I was just doing it because uh, that was that was the story at the beginning of the book, and I thought, oh, is that how you pronounce it? I've been doing it wrong this whole time. But the book itself, you go into the uh, culture of, cre- of like the creation tools that ZZT offered, and the communities that spawned up around it. Mm. I think, in a lot of ways, the sort of the community that I talk about in the book is really typical of a lot of things that happen in a lot of, I guess, online game communities and especially people's first game communities. Can you go more in depth about that? Well, I mean, so like I, I talked earlier about this idea of of imitation and of sort of of a lot of the more interesting qualities of works coming from the ways in which those imitations, the ways in which things are derivative, but also in in which they sort of have to make up for their inability to really replicate the thing that they're imitating. And ZZT was, in particular, is a good platform for that because it's really built for this one specific kind of game. But being, you know, being someone's first game tool, it doesn't matter that it, that it might not um, be the best platform to, you know, replicate, you know, like Street Fighter 2 or whatever. You're still going to try. And sort of the... You know, the ways in which you have to, the choices that you have to make to constrain something like that into ZZT make for an entirely different game and a more interesting kind of game. Or at least for a game that's interesting because of what it is. And I feel like that's like pretty standard in, you know, people's first game making projects or or like, you know, I'm going to make Mega Man, I'm going to make whatever. And the ways in which you have to make concessions to the format that you're using. And then, because communities work the way that they do, people end up imitating the ways in which the sort of weird homunculus version of the thing that you've created now. And so, what ends up happening is the community goes from, you know, trying to recreate Mega Man or whatever to trying to recreate those recreations that other people in the community are making. And so the whole, you know, the whole design and the whole, I don't really want to use the word aesthetic, but I'm going to use it. Um, the whole aesthetic ends up going down this entirely different path because just because one person made this and that became the cool thing. And now everyone's trying to make things like that. And they're also, you know, their derivative things are also subtly different. And so there's like this, there are all these really interesting and sometimes really indecipherable to outsiders paths of imitation that produce really bizarre and and interesting things that you can't really expect to see in, you know, a a mass market game that's designed to sort of appeal to the right gamer demographics that you will sell a million copies. And so that those sorts of trends in small and DIY game communities are, are kind of the most interesting to me. You say you got, and I believe you said that you had like ZZT way back in the early 90s. 
Mm-hmm. I found a shareware of this a shareware disc of it at a like a school flea market. It was I don't know this dude had like this big display case of like lots and lots of shareware discs and like I, I think it was maybe the first piece of shareware that I ever bought and I it looked like a video game to me and that was you know exciting enough and I guess by luck I you know grabbed the one that ended up actually being a game creation tool and it had it was really colorful it had a, a smiley face on it you know and so yeah, and so I, I didn't even end up, you know, discovering t- till much later that the that you know the thing actually was like a tool, like a game making tool, not just you know, not just a game, which is what I was thinking. And you stuck with that community throughout the rest of the decade. It's not exactly. It's kind of it's kind of complicated. And in fact, there wasn't, I mean, when there wasn't really a community, or at least I didn't have access to a community when I first picked up the, the, the program. I wasn't online at this point, nor did I know that, you know, there were communities online that rallied around, like, stuff like that. And, yeah, so I made a bunch of, you know, I ended up making a bunch of ZZT games that, you know, I, you know, I showed to, like, local friends and, like, no one else. And then I sort of, I guess I eventually kind of just burned out on it for lack of, you know, people to show it to, stuff to do with it that felt new to me. And it wasn't until a while later when my family got AOL on the computer that we had that I realized, that I, you know, realized there were other people making this stuff, too, AOL at the time had had a huge ZZT download section that people were just submitting stuff to. And the stuff that, you know, I was able to download from that download section looked nothing like stuff that I had been making or playing. And that sort of kicked off my interest in the thing all over again. And uh, where did you go from there? I mean, eventually I... I guess I moved on to to other stuff. It was, in fact, I mean, I started working with Game Maker um, a while ago, and it was actually someone that I had known in the ZZT community who sort of made me realize that 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 was possible. You know, Clism, who is one of the people that I interview in the book, the creator of the game Kudzu, made a game in Game Maker called Seclus, which is a game that's like that was inspired by his mission to Estonia and, you know, featured art he drew by hand and scanned in. And for me, seeing that game was like, you know, this person made ZZT games. This person, you know, is someone I knew from working with ZZT. And if he could transition from that to something like Game Maker, then I probably can too. And so that sort of was sort of, I guess, the start of, I guess, my adult game making career was sort of that transition to Game Maker and to, you know, tinkering with that. I mean, 
games I'm making now, like not all of them, but games I've made this year, I've made in Game Maker. And so, you know, ZDT was in, in a lot of ways the, you know, the portal to all of that, the thing that made me realize that people can make games in the first place. Now, I first heard of you when uh, my colleagues at Pop Matters were going wild over lesbian spider queens of Mars, but I think the first work of yours I played and the one that got a lot of attention was Dysphoria. Mm-hmm. That is definitely probably the first game of mine and a lot of people play. And it wasn't until, like, I always thought, this seems like very WarioWare-esque, like you've changed, like, the conditions and the setting and the, uh, I guess not setting, but, like, circumstances, uh-huh. but it feels Wario's like... It was, yeah, well, also, it just feels like a lot of mini-games, like, superimposed next to one another mm-hmm. to create a, a mosaic of a concept. In WarioWare Chaos, it's comedy through absurdist chaos. In this case, it's an emotion over a period of time with tra- with a hom- hormonal therapy. And then I read in... And then I read in yeah, sorry. And then I read and they said, oh, WarioWare Do-It-Yourself was one of the creation tools she talks about. Mm-hmm. So, WarioWare was definitely, if this, is the, if this is what you're leading up to, WarioWare yeah. was definitely an inspiration for Dysphoria. I definitely deliberately like chose to use the same format to make that game in. And it feels like that was one of your other tenets of like taking something that you've done before and then building off of it into creating something new or slightly altered that creates something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same, the same idea of like being willing to be derivative and sort of. I think most people would not argue that Sphoria is a very different game than WarioWare. That was definitely you know the the, the model that I used. And like I don't know, I feel like we, I feel like we, I don't know, have this like idea of everyone in indie games is like trying to be this brilliant auteur who's like comes up with this idea that's never been heard from before, and you know, has taken has polished it to crystalline perfection. And I think there's actually a lot of value value in being derivative and in remixing things and like to some extent I, I think it's true that dysphoria is kind of a, a remix of WarioWare. yeah innovation has become like kind of a meaningless word in video games hasn't it for sure i feel like the idea of innovation also sort of privileges those people who are given the like i you know, sort of like I said earlier, who are given the economic stability to, like, sit around and be geniuses and, you know, lay in their, like, Socrates-esque, like, palaces and philosophize over, you know, what the next brilliant, innovative indie game might be. Whereas, like, people who can't really afford to spend forever working on a, a single a single project on their single you know magnum opus are engaged in grabbing whatever you know ideas they can and, and, and quickly spin them into into things and then move on yeah I think innovation for its own sake is kind of 
kind of not something everyone really gets to do or think about or worry about or care about. On the same idea that I do think, or at least the games that I've played of yours, they are innovative just on a very small scale. There's like pieces of it that are new mm-hmm. and fresh, and that makes the whole thing feel fresh because it adds, it, it's like adding a fresh ingredient to a salad. It just makes it new. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm fine with that metaphor. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, typically a game that I make will be, I don't know, a single idea that I have. I'll be like, that would be, should I, yeah, I'll make it. And then, you know, which is, it's easy when I, not necessarily easy, but when I'm turning out stuff so quickly, when I'm making, you know, so much stuff, it's really low risk to you know, have an idea and be like, you know, well, if I can do that in, like, a couple of days, then, you know, I'll do it and just do it. It would be different if, I mean, it would be different for one thing if I didn't have Patreon, if I had to, you know, sell all the things that I make. And so having this sort of, having this guaranteed income, sort of regardless of, of what I turn out, it really helps me to be be able to do that. But if I had to spend a lot of time on a project and, like, polish it to where it would be sale-worthy, then it wouldn't make sense to turn most of the ideas that I have into games, into something finished. And so, which is maybe why I don't really care for, for that model of creation at all, because I think it produces generally less interesting things and fewer of them. I was uh, in preparation for this interview. I was going through making sure I I caught everything that major thing that you were involved in, and then I noticed that oh, she has gone back to the art of making zines, small little pamphlets about a very short topic, uh-huh. and uh-huh. offering phys- physical and uh, PDF copies of them. Care to talk about that? Well, I mean, felt like after I you know wrote a book about comparing games to zines, I had to like actually build up a, you know, substantial library of zines. So that's been, I you know, one of my projects for a while. I mean, so, like, you know, some of my income comes from Patreon, and the other, the rest of my income comes from stuff that I sell. And so I'm selling games, and I'm selling zines right now. And uh, the zines are, I mean, zines are have always been a really amazing format, which is why I you know, wrote a book about how I want games to be more like them. You know, zines are a pretty democratized form of publishing. The idea that, like, all you need is the ability to make copies to create them and distribute them. And so, you know, in the process of trying to make my games become more like zines, I've ended up making a ton more zines. And I'm pretty proud of them, actually. The, one of the most recent ones I'm, I'm selling is sort of, it's called Anna's Guide to Freelancing, and it, the cover features a picture of me holding a lance. And it's like basically a collection of just advice that I've learned about making money as a freelancer in the you know past five years or so. And so... And that's been selling pretty decently, I think, because no one who's freelancing knows what the how like how the fuck to make money. So, 
you know, that's exciting. I made a zine recently about my relationship with my mother that sort of, if you played Animal Collective, I was going to say Animal Collective, uh, um, if you play Animal Crossing, then sometimes in that game you receive you'll receive letters from your mom, like your like your the your in game characters in game mom, and I sort of I wrote a zine that was about you know things that my mom has said to me since I moved across the entire country away from her, but in like written as letters you would receive from your mom in Animal Crossing. And I sent her a copy of it like in the mail a while ago and she really liked it. And so I don't know, that was it's the same idea as sort of the the way I make games. The idea that you can just have a single little idea and that that's enough that you can make that that you shouldn't worry about that whether it's inadequate or whether it needs, you know, to be polished. Like all the qualities that I, I like, I want to be more valued in games are like the qualities that are very much valued in Z making. Just the ability to make something, to have an idea, to make it, and to put it out there, which so people can have it. That's really interesting and exciting to me. I haven't read these, but since you also published them, you have two other books out. Choose Your Own Death, Star Wench, uh-huh. and Game Design Vocabulary. What can you tell me about them? Um, so Star Wench was my first my first published book of fiction. It's a Choose Your Own Adventure book where every page it describes a different way that you die. And you just open up to a page at random and read how you die. That actually is probably the project that I've worked on for the longest out of everything, and that I spent kind of, I spent three years writing the book, and then even more time searching for a publisher. It, it was hard to find a publisher for, if you can believe that. And it was eventually you know, picked up by this small press that mostly publishes vampire romance fiction. But that's, I, I think I'm more excited about putting that out into the world than maybe any other project. Warren Spector said that he laughed and cried in every single page. I recently actually published like a zine sequel to that book actually that is like, you know, 10 more pages and and 10 more deaths. And I know that's sort of, I guess the project that's been closest to my heart that I've worked on the most, even though it's the least profitable of anything and I've actually spent more money I think on that book than I've you know ever received from it I used a lot of the profits from Lesbian Spider Queens of Mars to commission artists to illustrate the original book and I don't know I guess I guess you would call it a labor of love I don't know and then Game Design Vocabulary is a book that it's a textbook basically that I co-wrote with Naomi Clark who is who is a genius and people tell me that they use it in their classrooms and it's good so I guess I trust them I mean it's been a, been a while since since I you know since I worked on that book and it was an, an attempt to 
actually codify some sort of language for talking about the design of games and how we approach thinking about storytelling in games and not storytelling in the sense of like the sort of narratives that we present, but in terms of like how the actual rules of the game and how they interact and how, you know, and how that plays out actually tells a story about the rules of the game as characters. And so I don't know personally whether I think I was really successful in that regard, but people have said that the book was helpful to them and useful. And, you know, in that way, I think I think of it as a success. One thing that I'd like to ask about, because I get a little uh, giddy about when I see a good cover, uh-huh. and I'm wondering where yours came from. because uh, I'm looking at a lot of these zines, and they've all got interesting designs on them, and I'm wondering, did you do that yourself, or did you... Um, to get someone to help. You would have to be more specific about which ones. Well, let's start with Rise of the Zinesters. Okay, so that one. <laughs> so yeah, I actually I, I drew the backgrounds on um, like all the pixel people who are on that. I drew that myself. I didn't design the cover. You know, my publisher Seven Stories had a designer who came up with that concept for the cover. Except that you know the cover that. He designed was covered in like e boy characters, and I was like, no, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do this myself because that's what I do, I guess, is create work for myself needlessly all the time. So I ended up, yeah, I ended up drawing like there's like 160 something different little people for this cover, and I'm pretty happy with the way it came out, but it, you know. It, created a month of work for me that I really probably didn't need to do, but I did end up selling posters of it, so it was it was cool in the end. I never noticed. There are no repeats on this. There no, are no repeats. I mean, there's, you know, the ones in the back and the front are the same, but yeah, yeah. every single one of those is unique. Some of them are huh. recycled from other games that I've made. I just never noticed that. I love the pun, by the way, the freelancing one. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I apologize for it, like, almost every time that I mention it, because I feel like it's it's really, like, in dad joke territory. I, I've told worse. <laughs> so, did you do that one yourself? Uh, no, that was, the cover for that book was drawn by Marissa Luna, who's an amazing artist. Uh, the terrible pun was my idea, but... Yeah, no, they did all of the, you know, the beautiful, gorgeous art that's on the cover, and also, you know, illustrations that are inside the book. I have actually a second Patreon that's entirely for for my zines, under the name Kissing Covens, and all of the money that I get through that Patreon goes toward paying artists and contributors. I don't like keep any of that money for myself, but it gives me a budget to solicit illustrations and, and in some cases like writing for the zines that I make, which is amazing. There's a, there's also a part in that zine that, about taxes that that was contributed by Jen Kaplan because I don't know shit about how to do your taxes. 
stay up nights thinking about in terror. And so, yeah, being able to, like, having money to pull from to pay her with was really, really, was really, made me really, really happy. I think that's everything I've got. That's been lovely talking to you. And uh, now the, I guess, the closing out fluff question. Uh-huh. Not not what you think is the best, but what is your favorite video game of all time? Oh, God. I hate this question so much. Um, let me I tell you, it- you know, like, usually when, when I'm asked what my favorite video game is, I usually answer with my favorite video game that I've played recently. What video games have I played recently? I don't even know. Okay, so I, so my favorite video game of all time that I've played this year is this game called Depot Dungeons. It was created in Megazeus, which was a sort of sequel to ZZT, actually. Alexis Jansen, who I interview in ZZT, created this sort of in a lot of ways, more powerful sort of answer um, to ZZT, which is more based on her experiences, like, coding for, like, Commodore 64 and for things with, like, you know, for things that have more editable character sets and, and, and things that ZZT lacks. And so it sort of brings the, those things into a ZZT-like environment. And so someone... Otto Germain released this game at the like at I think like like five minutes to midnight at the start of the year that that they'd been working on for I think at least a year now called Depot Dungeons. That's this very intricately like this is kind of an example of the kind of games that I don't make the like super refined and crystal brilliant um, explorations of a single concept in this game. Is sort of a hybrid between traditional Sokoban style puzzle games and a more roguelike kind of dungeon hacky thing. And so it's about manipulating in a, in a really puzzle game sort of way these environments that are very unpuzzle game like, and that the things that you're manipulating are, you know, creatures who have specific behaviors and interactions with other creatures and, you know, items that are available in, in super limited qualities and thinking about making really, really hard decisions about how to use those extremely limited resources. And it's like, I, you know, that's the kind of game that games nerds are really, really into generally. And, I'm it really kind of breaks my heart that not more people are obsessed with this game because it's the, it's the exact right kind of game and so in in hopes of more people dis- discovering and becoming obsessed with this game I'm talking about it right now it's called Depot Dungeons and it's on the internet somewhere is that depot like D E P O T yes like the like the idea of like yeah. I mean, the game takes place in like a post apocalyptic depot of some sort. Depot dungeons. See, you always get an interesting answer. Do you always get an interesting answer to that question? 
Uh, usually revealing some part of the thinking process of the interviewee. Yeah. Cool. Well, good question. I guess. <laughs> as long as you don't take it too seriously, you usually get an interesting answer. Well, thank you very much again for coming on and speaking with me today. And if you want to, you can follow Anna Anthropy on Twitter. She is Ante Pixelante. Uh, she has a Patreon at patreon.com, Queen of Space, and as uh, she said, a second Patreon for paying zine artists at patreon.com slash kissingcovens. You can pretty much pick up anything you want, hers, her games, her zines, her books, off of her website, antepixelade.com. Did I miss anything? Mm, I mean, so if I can add one thing. Go right I, ahead. I also run a site called Anarchive, Anna archive.com um, which is uh, an ongoing sort of repository for games media and um, and scans and I'm sort of I'm building up a collection of game books of I- interesting game magazines and manuals and all that sort of you know ephemera that is really I think important to the history of games that has had a hard time surviving digitization I, I think I've got the like scans of everything from the board game Tales of the Crystals so like someone could actually recreate it and I don't know anarchive.com is like a project of mine that more people could check out and if you missed any of that you can find them all down below in the show notes thank you again Anna for coming on yeah no problem thanks for having me it's been a blast